The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. If you can go to Congress and you can say, this is the amount of harm in dollar value that you know ransomware is in fact uh, doing and th- this is not just a washington post headline here or there but you know an actual sheer number of you know companies that have been affected and what sort of the costs are to the, to the economy that also incentivizes you know potentially bigger payments towards defense or understanding that some of these things have national security consequences I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 6th, 2021. Matt Tate is the Chief Operating Officer of Corellium. He is best known as the Twitter handle, Pwn All the Things. He was a hacker for GCHQ, the British version of the National Security Agency. He was also the CEO of Capital Alpha Security, and he worked at Google Project Zero and a lot of other places as well. He is an all-around cybersecurity guru, and he joined me in the Virtual Jungle Studio to discuss ransomware and other stuff We recorded most of this podcast before the news of the Kaseya ransomware attack broke over the weekend. Matt wrote a piece on Lawfare last night entitled The Kaseya Ransomware Attack is a Really Big Deal. We talked a bit about Kaseya at the beginning of the podcast before turning to a more general discussion of ransomware, other current cybersecurity threats, and what Matt is worried about as he looks into the future. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 6th. Matt Tate, Ransomware's All the Things. So Matt, the rest of this discussion was recorded Thursday before the latest ransomware news broke, but let's start with what has come out over the weekend. Describe what we know about this latest situation, how serious is it, and how different is it from ransomware attacks that we've seen in the past? Right. So the big event over the weekend was a company called Casia was hacked and used in a supply chain uh, ransomware attack against essentially all of its customers. So for a little bit of background, Casia is a managed service provider, uh, which means that it essentially operates as sort of an outsourced IT department for a lot of uh, small, medium sized companies. And they have a, a management interface that allows them to essentially control uh, the IT infrastructure of these companies, the, the Casey's customers. And an organization, uh, or I guess an affiliate for the ransomware gang uh, called Revil, uh, that's R-Evil, 
Uh, apparently that stands for uh, Ransom Evil, which is a reference to Resident Evil for uh, uh, folks old enough to remember that game. Um, what they basically did was they managed to breach into the managed service provider management portal and uh, essentially ship this ransomware to all of Casey's customers or to uh, certainly a, a large number of Casey's customers. And that ransomware did what ransomware always does, which is to essentially encrypt all of the files on those systems, rendering them inoperable and demanding a ransomware payment. The information we have at the moment is they're demanding about $45,000 worth of cryptocurrency to unlock any given uh, computer system. And they're offering to unlock all of the computer systems that were compromised uh, for the grand total of $70 million worth of cryptocurrency. Uh, the Revil operators are claiming that a million systems were hacked. I think there's lots of reasons to take that with uh, a whole bucket of salt, but certainly a large number of organizations were hacked. And uh, this has had some substantial knock-on effect, effects in, in sort of the real world with, you know, Swedish supermarkets closing down, a bunch of other organizations very seriously disrupted because of this ransomware incident. And as I wrote in Lawfare yesterday, um, I think there's actually lots of reasons to look at this event over the weekend as not merely another ransomware event, but actually as something a little bit different. The subversion of the supply chain, the, the sort of misuse of standard uh, software distribution mechanisms as they did here, I think really is quite a different category compared with how ransomware operators and how, you know, malware is traditionally delivered either through, you know, uh, phishing attacks or through uh, zero-day vulnerabilities in, I think, three quite important ways. So the first important way is that by subverting the supply chain, they're actually interacting with the software delivery mechanisms in a way that's very, very pathological to the way that cybersecurity defense traditionally operates. So if you contrast it with, say, you know, a, a, a phishing email, uh, you know, that, that tends to affect a small number of individual organizations at a time. Uh, you know, even when it's sort of mass deployed, it's not going to saturate the entire incident response community. Whereas when we look at things like subverting supply chains, the number of victims in a single go can be truly, truly colossal in a way that really threatens to sort of undermine all of the cybersecurity defensive products that we have in place because updates are sort of traditionally going to route past those and, you know, overwhelm the incident response community as a whole in a way that's sort of very different to traditional malware delivery mechanisms. And sort of the second thing that I think is very important to see is that, you know, the, the really big disruptive cyber attacks, you know, and cyber events that we've seen in the past few years have all really been through subversion of the supply chain. Uh, if we look at things like SolarWinds, for instance, uh, that was uh, you know a phenomenally successful espionage campaign. Uh, but how was it delivered? It was delivered through uh, the SolarWinds uh, software update mechanism. Uh, and the NotPetya event uh, in 2017 stands alone as easily the most disruptive uh, and destructive cyber attack in history. I think at the, the most recent estimates, about $10 billion worth of damage to the global community, uh, you know, with knock-on effects in, you know, uh, global supply chains in the physical world. Now, that was delivered through a malicious update 
to the Ukrainian accountancy software MEDOC. And I think when we sort of understand that, you know, this KCA event sort of sits in that category, you know, the subversion of supply chains, that we can start to see, you know, this is actually very, very disruptive and, you know, potentially very destructive. It sort of fits into something that's a little bit different to other cybersecurity events that we see ordinarily day to day. And I think the third thing that I think really sort of makes people pay pay attention is when you look at these massive, massive attacks, you know, this latest one, but also the SolarWinds one and also the uh, uh, ME doc one that led to NotPetya, the companies at issue are actually relatively small in the grand scheme of things. And that should be terrifying. You know, that uh, uh, a level of disruption that vast can happen thanks to these very, very small organizations. And that, you know, the the, the bigger organizations are not necessarily uh, massively well secured themselves. And, and that should make everybody sit up and think, well, what happens then? And I think that's why we really need to look at this latest event as something that's not just a little bit more of the same. It's not just another ransomware incident. But it really is sitting in this new category or, or this important category uh, that we really need to pay very close attention to, uh, because if we don't find a way of resolving uh, supply chain security and we don't find a way of, of resolving it in particular for ransomware, but generally for all types of malware, um, then we're potentially sleepwalking into a very, very dangerous era. Uh, where large numbers of systems are not just insecure, but non-securable. Since the last time you appeared on the Lawfare podcast and now, probably the biggest change in the cybersecurity environment is that everybody in the world suddenly knows the word ransomware. And I'm interested in your sense of how big a change this is to the actual living cybersecurity ecosystem. Yeah, so I mean, it's definitely grown, not necessarily in form, but in scale very dramatically in, in the past, you know, couple of years. But, you know, the, the past year in particular, it's got enormous. Uh, I think it's sort of come very much to the, the public fore through things like the Colonial Pipeline hack, uh, and of course, the, the meat processing hack that happened very shortly afterwards as well. And that sort of like reminds people, I think, that, you know, these computer networks, they're not just things happening in, you know, offices far away. They're actually things that are affecting everybody's lives. And it's, it's got to a point now where the the number of these hacks and the scale of them is sort of wildly out of control. And, you know, it's sort of impacting ordinary folks' lives in a way that's sort of very upsetting, I think. And what what do you attribute that to? So a lot of people say, you know, this is really a function of the availability of cryptocurrency and that we've created, you know, a payment architecture that works for these. This is hardly a new technology. What has changed that has enabled it to become a multi-gazillion dollar industry? Yeah, so it's, it's definitely not new. We've had ransomware for, you know, as pretty much as as long as I can remember, I think the big thing that's changed in the past year is the fact that everybody's having to work from home, and a consequence of that and the the, the speed at which that happened meant that 
corporate networks are now having to be open. There's no real opportunity for you know uh, uh, companies that used to be able to have quite closed networks to maintain that closure. That means that lots of people are working from home. That means that a lot of the corporate firewalls, a lot of the uh, corporate networks are open, and it means that you know. As well, on top of that, you have lots of folks working from personal computers as well, rather than corporate computers because they're working from home. And that gives an enormously large number of new entry points into these networks. So I think that's a lot of the reason why the last year has been as bad as it's been. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, there's lots of bored folks uh, at home on the offensive side as well. So there's also potentially more folks sort of paying attention there. Cryptocurrency is, of course, not new, but I think it's, it's reached sort of the zeitgeist, I guess, to a new level uh, with Bitcoin, you know, becoming so valuable that, you know, everybody's aware of it. And, you know, the, the problem of cryptocurrencies allowing these anonymous payments uh, uh, remains a problem. Uh, I'm not sure that we have a good answer to that, you know, socially at the moment as to how we can sort of combat that. So the other day, Dmitry Alperovich interviewed Ann Neuberger, the White House's uh, cybersecurity guru, and she was pretty agnostic about the question of whether the right answer was to ban ransomware payments. I think the subtext of the conversation, I mean, what she basically said was, uh, we strongly discourage it discourage ransomware payments, but she didn't really answer the question of whether Congress should step in and outlaw them. Given that the best way to dry up this market is to simply say to companies, you can't pay this. It's one thing to pay ransoms for human beings who are going to get killed. It's quite another thing to pay ransoms for data that you should have protected in the first place to known criminal organizations. Do you have views of what reasonable democratic governance would and wouldn't allow regarding ransomware payments? That's a very difficult question. And I, I can kind of see both sides on this. Before we had ransomware, we did have sort of, you know, human ransoms and, you know, terrorist demands and things like that. And, you know, countries sort of developed a, a over time and understanding that when you give in to some of these demands, it actually encourages other people to make their own demands. Uh, and that's the case in ransomware too. If nobody paid ransomware fees, then, you know, there would be much less incentive for these ransom, you know, where operators to actually, you know, do the, the, the thing in the first place. But it's a very difficult thing to go to a CEO of a company that's just had their entire uh, network encrypted and say, you know, there's no mechanism for you to get this back. There's this guy on the internet who says for a million dollars of Bitcoin, uh, they will unlock your network, but you're not allowed to. You have to take the $40 million cost of, you know, rebuilding your network or, you know, uh, uh, sort of going beyond that. And I think the U.S. in particular really doesn't have a, a, a good history of uh, doing these things where the, the social good thing is not necessarily the individually optimal thing. Uh, in the moment. And it's not clear that if there was a way of banning these ransomware payments, uh, if Congress said that, that there wouldn't continue to happen under the hood without a lot of additional things being layered on top, such as, you know, enforcing, you know, know your customer requirements on 
cryptocurrency payments, which comes with it, you know, essentially fighting the entire cryptocurrency community, because that's where a lot of the cryptocurrency sort of motives come from is, you know, allowing a lot of these uh, anonymous, unregulated payments. So it's a very difficult question, I think. Realistically, I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think we sort of have the political momentum to, you know, take on both of these problems, the cryptocurrency community on the one hand and the CEOs of companies that have just been locked up on the other in order to sort of force that through. I, I just don't see the political momentum behind it. I want to return to the cryptocurrencies in a moment, but just staying on this, because I'm increasingly of the belief that restrictions on payments actually should be doable, uh, leave aside whether it is politically or not. Do you believe, as I do, that the volume of ransomware payments is exponentially higher than the known public volume of such payments? Oh, by, by a, a huge margin. There's a lot of companies and there's a lot of, you know, folks in, in sort of the, the non-company space, you know, uh, charities, hospitals, you know, all sorts of places where losing their data is, you know, catastrophic to, you know, them continuing operations. Um, they, you know, uh, uh, make these payments because they need the problem to go away so that they can get back to work. Uh, and a lot of those just never get reported, you know, a, a very, very large percentage of them. So if you took all the public ransomware cases and had to assign a coefficient to the actual randomware cost to, you know, like what what factor are we talking about here in your rough estimation? Is it a factor of 10, a factor of five, a factor of 100, a factor of 1,000? Well, I mean, it's ultimately going to be a finger in the air value, but like I would guess more than a factor of 10, probably less than a factor of 100. But, you know, I, I couldn't say for sure where between those, like it's probably on the, the larger rather than smaller end of that spectrum. Okay, so what if you, instead of banning the payments, simply ban secret payments? That is to say, it's a criminal offense to comply with a ransomware demand without notifying the FBI uh, or without notifying OFAC or without notifying FinCEN. I don't, I don't, I haven't thought through who the regulator should be, but you, so you at least get some data and you get the public humiliation aspect of it. Well, I mean, the, the public humiliation aspect is, you know, maybe a different thing, but I think there's a lot of value to that direction anyway. Because in the event that you can involve someone like the FBI into, you know, your company's ransomware event, first of all, there, there's a small percentage, but, you know, a non-zero percentage of those where the FBI can, in fact, help. So the FBI might have the, the uh, ransomware operator's keys, for instance, and they might be able to decrypt your data directly. Second of all, they might be able to help you in future to, you know, uh, what kind of strategies uh, you might be able to do in order to sort of secure your network going forward, even if you've, you know, lost all of this data, you know, previously. Thirdly, it helps, I think, the, the US government understand the scale of the problem and also who the most prolific actors are and helps them prioritize that. So, uh, for instance, uh, if there's one group that's consistently going after people that don't tell, 
that might actually be a, a very substantial ransomware actor. And for the US government to know that, they might be able to you know, prioritize targeting them through the, the justice system or through the intelligence system or whatever. And potentially gaining access to you know their keys, potentially gaining access to the people that are running those accounts and, and sort of bringing them uh, to justice that way. So I think there's a lot of value to that beyond just sort of the public humiliation aspect. And I think also if you can go to Congress and you can say, this is the amount of harm in dollar value that you know ransomware is in fact you know uh, uh, doing, and th- this is not just you know. A Washington Post headline here or there, but you know an actual sheer number of you know companies that have been affected, and what sectors are affected, and you know, what sort of the costs are to the, to the economy. That also incentivizes you know potentially bigger payments towards defense or understanding that some of these things have national security consequences, and sort of taking more notice there. So it seems to me that one of the important values here which you just alluded to obliquely, but I want to get you to sketch it out more in more detail, is the mapping of cryptocurrency wallets. So, you know, cryptocurrency is pseudonymous, but if you can identify certain keys as associated with certain people, the blockchain becomes a heck of a roadmap. It becomes very much like a ledger of a bank and certain addresses become names. It seems to me if you were to require disclosure of all of these ransomware incidents, you would find very, very large numbers of Bitcoin being transferred to relatively few addresses that would probably be an intelligence goldmine in terms of when combined with other sources, at least, about who is doing this. Yeah, I think that's right. For all of uh, uh, sort of the cryptocurrencies advantages that are played up by the cryptocurrencies community, uh, ransomware folks are overwhelmingly not interested in the cryptocurrency itself. They want cold, hard dollars because that's what buys stuff. You mean they're not idealists who are who were interested in advancing the algorithms of anonymity and privacy? Oh, I'm sure they love anonymity and privacy, but perhaps not for the reasons that the cryptocurrency community do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, they, they, these people ultimately they don't want to have you know some magic math numbers in a wallet on a, a file on the desktop. What they want is to want uh, cold hard dollars so that they can buy stuff. Uh, local to themselves. And that means ultimately converting this cryptocurrency into hard currency at some point. And so while you get a lot of these privacy advantages within, you know, the the cryptocurrency ecosystem by sort of, uh, uh, so long as you stay within it, they're not staying within it. At some point they want to, you know, convert it into currency and that requires providing an ID and a bank account to one of these exchanges in order to extract that value. And so in the event that we can sort of tie them down by seeing, you know, these are the cryptocurrency wallets that they are using. This is how that cryptocurrency moves through the system. And in the event that this cryptocurrency eventually lands in, say, a Coinbase wallet that's associated with, you know, John Smith in Minnesota, then, you know, the FBI can go and pay that guy a visit. And so that's definitely one of the advantages of more visibility 
and you get more visibility if if the FBI is required to be notified with you know some of this additional technical detail. So what do you think of before we shift to cryptocurrency regulation as a means of of addressing ransomware? What do you think the low-hanging fruit is like if you were if you were Ann Newberger or the administration and you had to develop, you know, the the highest impact policy that could be implemented the most easily. Where's your biggest bang for the buck in ransomware? That is in ransomware control, not in not in <laughs> building building and distributing. <laughs> well, yeah. So I, I guess and some of these they've already done, um, but I think one of them that they've already done that sort of making it louder would, would be super helpful is having a single place where everybody knows when I get a ransomware event in my company, this is the phone number that I call, right? And having a streamlined flow for, you know, I phone this number, this person phones me back, we confirm that there's a ransomware incident, they give me a, a piece of software that I can run that will try and determine whether or not there's something that they can do in the immediate term, and sort of collect some of these forensic artifacts in order to sort of identify which category of ransomware it is, you know, what the likely actor is, and to make sure the right people are involved on the federal side. And to sort of centralize that and make it very public and very clear what to do when you see, you know, the, the, the laptop screens in your company blinking red, you know, where do you go? What do you do? I think that that has a lot of mileage to it. The, the more difficult things are things like whether or not you should or whether or not you can implement things like know your customer requirements on large cryptocurrency payments. I think that there's a lot of political inertia towards that, uh, especially given the, the the dollar scale of the cryptocurrency industry right now. That that's a lot harder to do right now than it would have been to do a few years ago. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it's the wrong thing to do, and that has benefits not just in sort of your ransomware space, but also in you know all sorts of money laundering and other types of problems that we have as a society. And then making sure that I think there's a, a, a standing large, well-resourced team within the federal government, either based at uh, FBI, potentially with uh, a bunch of folks from NSA helping to sort of specifically target the operators behind these and to identify who, who are the big players and working out how to bring them to justice or how to shut down their networks. I think that's, that's where a lot of the value is going to be. All right, let's talk about those in order. And let's start with the cryptocurrency regulation. It's very hard for me to believe, honestly, that Coinbase is not meaningfully a bank within at least a common understanding of what a bank is. People are parking assets there worth very large sums of money, they are trading. Is there a decent argument? that if I put $100,000 in Citibank, that Citibank is obliged to know certain things about me and have information available about me. But if I do it in Bitcoin, uh, nobody needs to really know anything. Is there a decent policy argument for that view? Or is it just a 
a residue of the way this thing grew up? I think a lot of it is just a residue of how it grew up. Like for the longest time, like cryptocurrencies were not particularly interesting to regulators because they were small things that, you know, some hobbyists were doing in their bedrooms. And there wasn't enormous sums of money flowing through it. So you could, you know, to a large extent, ignore it. That time has long since passed now for the past sort of four years or so, like, you know, cryptocurrency has been a big problem in ransomware and money laundering in particular. And I, I think you're right, like, outside of sort of the, the true believers of the, the cryptocurrency space, people are using this in order to shuffle from dollars to cryptocurrency, and then at some point from cryptocurrency back to dollars. And the exchanges are where these transitions are taking place. And regulating them is, in fact, not that difficult. You know, Coinbase is a US-based company that has large amounts of, you know, dollars coming in and out. There's no particularly good reason why it couldn't be easily regulated in the way that Wells Fargo is. It's uh, uh, merely up to Congress to decide that Bitcoin is something, you know, or these other cryptocurrencies are something that they would like to regulate at the exchanges. And... At that point, you can put in, say, a, a know your customer requirement or, or similar requirements. You say, if you want to take out more than $10,000 to your bank account from a, a Coinbase account, then you need to demonstrate where this $10,000 worth of cryptocurrency came from. And there's perhaps good reasons why the IRS might want to know that already for tax reasons. Uh, and there's uh, uh, good reasons why we might, might want to know this in order to make sure that those $10,000 of cryptocurrency didn't in fact come from Colonial Pipeline CEO. So I, I don't think these these problems are as difficult as, as sort of the cryptocurrency makes them sound, although I think there's a, an enormous vested interest in them making it sound problematic. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of 
called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay and I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So you're, just to clarify what this would and wouldn't aid, it would not prevent a Russian organized crime gang that may have casual connections to the government of Russia from distributing malware to colonial pipeline and demanding $40 million in ransom to release it. It mm -hmm. would not prevent colonial pipeline from taking $40 million in cash and converting it to Bitcoin and sending it to a Bitcoin wallet associated with said criminal gang. And it would not prevent said criminal gang from 
having a little Bitcoin wallet that could fit in your front breast pocket sitting on their desk uh, for as long as they wanted. But it would prevent them from taking, and it further wouldn't prevent them from spending money in Bitcoin to buy a condo on the French Riviera, but it would prevent them from converting, from going to Coinbase or some other Bitcoin exchange, uploading, transferring that Bitcoin wallet content to a Coinbase account and converting it to dollars and then extracting it and uh, and using it in cash, either in dollars or in London real estate. Right. And this is not about preventing the intrusions. There's, you know, other things that perhaps we, we, we can and should be doing to prevent the intrusions in the first place. A sort of a, a fantastic example of that would be the not Petia ransomware event that, that took place a couple of years ago, which uh, a ransomware there very much in air quotes, where this uh, a Ukrainian accountancy firm got uh, hacked and then uh, all of the people using their software then got subsequently hacked. And then, you know, quote unquote, ransomware was deployed on all these systems, but there was no serious mechanism to get the files back. And that destroyed vast quantities of data uh, with all of these firms that were making use of this Ukrainian uh, accountancy software, including things like Merck. And so this wouldn't stop anything like that. Uh, It doesn't potentially, it it doesn't stop things like uh, people breaking into your system for espionage purposes either. And it doesn't stop people from trading cryptocurrencies and it doesn't stop people from mining cryptocurrencies. It only regulates, in this scenario, uh, sort of the cashing out process. So in the event that uh, I had a a Bitcoin wallet on my desktop, yes, I could potentially buy a house in London uh, in exchange for, you know, this private key. But then, of course, the person that has that private key can't turn that into dollars easily without proving where it came from. So maybe there's not a, a ton of incentive there for them to give me physical things in exchange for cryptocurrency that are very high value either. And it's sort of a a fairly traditional sort of money laundering. Right. But wouldn't that simply incentivize the use of Bitcoin as a criminal medium of exchange? Right. Hard to transfer out, but it is worth actual money. And so you would buy things with a basically a, a hard to transfer discount but actually buy things in Bitcoin, which is sort of the the original conception of, of Bitcoin, but it would work that way only for criminals. Well, potentially. And I, I think the, the reason why you will get enormous pushback and why, why there would be enormous political friction to doing this type of regulation is that doing this would mean that large payments in Bitcoin would suddenly become very difficult Uh, And it would be very difficult to transfer between Bitcoin and dollars. And that would make it much less attractive as a a sort of a a, a legitimate mechanism of exchange. And so, yeah, you could continue to use it for criminal purposes. But then you need to, of course, find someone that has a physical thing that's willing to give it to you in exchange for this cryptocurrency, which they might not be super interested in doing if there's not many legitimate reasons to to have this cryptocurrency. And so I think that's where a lot of the political friction are going to come from. So let's talk about your your third proposition, which is a relentless law enforcement focus on the perps here. Mm -hmm. The universe of perps, I suspect, is not all that large. 
but it is operating in environments of what the Russians call protexia, which is a word that requires no translation. Um, and so my question is, first of all, do you think the universe is in fact large? And secondly, how do you go after, presumably these people are smart enough not to go on vacation in France. What, what is the mechanism by which you go after them or is it ultimately about attacking their systems? Yeah, I, that's, it's a difficult one. Um, I, I don't think the, the universe is particularly large. I think you could probably fit most people working in offensive ransomware operations into a decent sized conference hall. And yeah, a lot of them, you know, are, are difficult to reach because they're in, you know, countries like Russia and countries like North Korea, countries that are difficult to sort of get to them. I think North Korea is a good example of, you know, somewhere where it sort of has overtly state-sanctioned, you know, hackers in order to try and uh, extract this type of value. And the only level of pressure that you're only going, that you're ever going to get to them is through the sort of standard uh, foreign policy diplomacy, you know, trying to, you know, uh, make this uh, country understand that it's an outlier in the world and imposing sanctions and sort of seeing Russia as sort of a, a less extreme version of that, but in this sort of similar category. In the event that they want to protect, you know, ransomware operators inside their country, then you have to respond to that at sort of the national level rather than at the individual level. And that's a, a sort of a long-term difficult problem, I think, with some of these countries. But, you know, in the event that Russia decided, you know, it, it doesn't want that kind of thing, it can, of course, go and round up its own people uh, that are doing these operations uh, and prevent them from doing so. It can make it clear to people internally that, you know, installing ransomware on Colonial Pipeline is something that their government will not accept and that there will be consequences in the event that they do. And... At that point, you know, it will have, you know, less incentives for those people to be doing it and it will it will happen less frequently. So we have had a bit of a debate over the relative severity of the solar winds hacks, uh, the Russian solar winds hacks, which got an enormous amount of attention and the Chinese uh, Microsoft Exchange server hacks, which got a fair bit less. And uh, Dmitry Alperovich argued on Lawfare that this is pretty much exactly backwards because the solar winds uh, hacks were, uh, you know, were a fairly conventional, though Russian, and therefore they really tweak us the wrong way, a fairly conventional intelligence operation directed at government agencies, whereas, and it was, you know, relatively contained, whereas the Microsoft Exchange server hack was really a uh, quite dramatic and indiscriminate attack on kind of everybody who's using a Microsoft Exchange server. What do you think of this argument? And and have we kind of let the Chinese off easy and been uh, too mean to the Russians here? So I, I don't disagree with Dimitri here. Uh, of the two attacks, the the one that keeps me up is SolarWinds, not the Microsoft Exchange one. All right, so walk us through why that is, because Dimitri argues just the opposite. Maybe we should set up a, a lawfare podcast debate between the two of you. 
we should. So the, the reason for it is less about what happened. So I, I kind of agree with Dimitri that the solar winds, sort of the way that they used their access is, you know, broadly espionage. Um, well, it's sort of, it's twofold. The, the first thing is that they, they shipped this malware to a very large number of customers as sort of setting the stage for potentially accessing further into their networks later. And then of that large group of, uh, of people that got this initial update, a small set of those were then tasked with additional malware in order to uh, sort of intrude much more aggressively deep into you know those networks, and that's what happened you know with with all these uh, federal government agencies in particular, but also a bunch of private sector companies as well. And to a large extent, like th- th- this was a very substantial uh, intelligence intrusion. You know, we should never be happy when you know we're on the receiving end of, of something at that kind of scale. Um, but it's sort of in a similar category to what we would expect with normal espionage. And that's sort of similar, in my view, to, you know, what happened with the, the Microsoft Exchange hack. Yes, the Chinese government, you know, uh, or, or the, these Chinese hackers put down this payload on a very, very large number of company exchange servers. Uh, one thing that they did slightly differently was that uh, uh, if you actually had a serious knowledge of what, what, what was going on, you could, in fact, use that knowledge to then... Uh, subsequently access all of these other exchange servers. So they, they undermined the security of all of these uh, other companies as part of their prepositioning. And I think that's uh, one of the things that uh, Dimitri finds, I don't want to speak for him, but I, I would have thought that's one of the things that he would find so objectionable uh, about what happened there. The reason why of the two of them, SolarWinds is the one that keeps me up at night is that the Microsoft Exchange vulnerabilities are vulnerabilities that you as a user or you as a company can broadly fix by installing updates, right? It's a relatively conventional method of resolving this problem. If I as a company maintain, you know, the the updates on my system, you know, in the event that I get compromised, I bring in a a standard incident response team, Uh, we can kind of clean up the network. And and the only thing that matters is that I have the latest version of all all these pieces of software on my system. That's sort of a, a path forward that I can take. And it's an obvious path forward that I can take. SolarWinds and, you know, also not Petya and a couple of these other uh, supply chain issues keep me up because it it turns security on its head. The reason why all of these people got the malware is because they installed the update from SolarWinds, right? And what this is doing is it's it's telling people that these conventional things designed to deliver additional security to your systems is in fact delivering malware to your systems. It's, It's completely inverting the way that we normally keep things secure in a way that completely undermines confidence in these systems and in a way that's really difficult to to think of good ways to secure. When we start looking not just at SolarWinds, but sort of expanding out the universe of these substantial technology companies that are shipping updates and start thinking, well, how many of these have these programs that, you know, uh, in the event that they're, they're shipped to your systems, they can install malware. And you think how many of these companies there are and how well each one of them have secured their, you know, individual networks. And um, the fact that I can't, as a company, 
defend against it by, you know, in any sort of obvious way. And also as a defender, you know, as a, 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 a in cybersecurity, a, a sort of a, a defense, this is not something that SolarWinds could have fixed by, you know, scanning their source code. It's not something that they could have fixed by, you know, uh, uh, training all of their developers. It's something that sort of happened adjacent to that. It, it, it's much more sort of holistically damaging, I think, to the entire of the, the cybersecurity community in a way that the Microsoft Exchange hack was not. So what do you make of the U.S. response to the two, which, you know, has been, in the case of the Microsoft Exchange server, matter to effectively get a court order that allowed a kind of reverse hacking by the good guys, and in the case of Solar Winds, was a kind of, you know, statement by the administration that we're doing something important that you can't see. What do you make of of the U.S. response, and, and as well as some sanctions? What what do you make of the U.S. response to each of these? So I think the technical response uh, on the the Microsoft Exchange were, was exactly right. Going into all of these systems that have been compromised and removing the malware, I think it was the the correct thing for them to do. I remember Dimitri advocating, you know, basically just pounding the table and demanding the Chinese do that. I I think this was more likely to succeed going down this path. And I think it was the right thing to do. And I'm not particularly concerned by the FBI uh, very narrowly removing malware uh, that they know exists on these systems. I think that was the, the right approach. The lack of sort of national response uh, sort of at the international level, I think is a, a little bit worrying that they, they declined to sort of make a bigger deal of it because I think it, it was a big deal. You mean just internationally with the, you know, in diplomacy with the Chinese? Yeah, like ma- making a big deal of it, uh, saying this was unacceptable, drawing attention sort of to the international community that this thing happened and it, it's not acceptable and the United States does not find it acceptable and it should not happen again in future in similar, uh, you know, in, in similar circumstances if you know something else has a vulnerability and, you know, the, the Chinese government wants to hack it and they're going to mass hack all of these uh, things and put additional vulnerable backdoors on all of these U.S. companies, then we're going to have, you know, some consequences. And I think the, the U.S. failing to do that, I think, were, were, was unfortunate. On the SolarWinds thing, again, I, I find it very unfortunate the way that the U.S. does a lot of its signaling at the international stage. And in particular, they, they didn't really draw attention to what it was precisely that they objected to. We saw this in 2016 as well with the the U.S. sanctions against Russia at the very end of uh, President Obama's term as well. This sort of very confused picture that they put out, you know, here's a collection of sanctions and a collection of things that we object to. And we're not going to really distinguish which of these things that we really object to are things that were bugging us from, you know, a a while ago and, you know, just kind of annoy us versus things that are actually red lines and must not happen again. And failing to distinguish these, I think, leads to very confused messages. And in the SolarWinds case, that happened again, which is that it's not super clear reading it what it is that they object to beyond the fact that it happened. You know, this was a big uh, uh, hack. Lots of federal agencies were uh, compromised. A whole bunch of emails were read. But what was it specifically that, that 
they don't like? Is it that, you know, they, they, they did this via updates? That's the thing that annoys me. Uh, was it that they hacked the you know, Department of Energy? Was it the, the fact that they you know, were reading some people's emails at the State Department? Was it the fact that Microsoft was compromised? It's completely unclear reading any of their statements. And I, th I think that that level of ambiguity doesn't help actually like developing or enforcing any of these norms. A couple of years ago, if we had had a conversation where we said, what's going to be the big thing in cybersecurity two years from now? I don't know whether either of us would have identified ransomware as, you know, those were percolating things. We were talking about them, but I'm, I do think they kind of jumped out of the closet and said boo and took a lot of people by surprise, particularly their interaction with one another. What is the thing that's percolating now that two years from now is going to jump out of the closet and say boo and take a lot of people by surprise? And you're going to roll your eyes and say, look, this thing's been hiding, been in the closet for a long time. It's, we've kind of all known about it. Why on earth are you surprised by it now? Well, the, the one that genuinely keeps me up at night and I think is a, a unless we do something much bigger, is a when, not an if, is we've seen a lot of supply chain attacks go on with sort of auxiliary pieces of software and companies. We haven't as yet really seen sort of strategic attacks against, you know, platforms. And those are the things that really, really keep me up at night. You know, we have a, a couple of really enormous companies that are developing software that literally everybody in the world depends on for security. You're talking here about Facebook, Google, Amazon. Yeah, I'm less Apple. Sort of, I'm Facebook's a good example in terms of the amount of data that it has, but also uh, things like you know Microsoft Windows, Macs, iPhone software, uh, Android. Uh, you know, Linux itself, you know, some of these really critical central to, you know, the security of everything systems, where in the event that those start to become untrustworthy, in the event that some of those start to go rogue, then, you know, very substantial parts of the internet become, you know, directly at risk. Is AWS one of those things? Because I, 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 the amount of the internet that actually runs on Amazon servers never ceases to surprise me. Yeah, I mean, AWS is is absolutely colossal at this point. You know, e even some of the the, the 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 really big things that you think of as not being Amazon are all Amazon under the hood. And so it's, uh, uh, and, and you have a couple of uh, equivalents, uh, uh, Windows Azure, sort of the Microsoft cloud also is responsible for running some like terrifyingly large number of corporate networks, you know, at least at the center, if not, you know, in the totality. And so there, there's a bunch of these things where the, the security of them is not, you know, something that's a nice to have. It's something that if you do not have, then actually everything is, you know, a, a nightmare world where, you know, uh, nothing really works and the power goes off. It's a bit of a Fort Knox problem. Yeah. And it's it's one of these sort of weirdnesses of sort of centralization versus decentralization. Uh, in the event that you centralize a lot of your security apparatus, then that means that you have less to defend. But it also means that in the event that you fail to defend these single points of failure, then, you know, things go bad much quicker than they would have done otherwise. 
And, you know, I, I see a lot with policymakers, you know, they get very concerned about things that sort of have physical analogies, you know, like they're very worried about, you know, what if the lights turn off? You know, what if someone in a foreign country, you know, hacks our power grid and, you know, uh, to the extent that the U.S., has a functioning power grid right now. But, you know, uh, uh, what happens if they hack a, a power station and they cause, you know, the lights to go out? And, you know, that, that, would, that would suck. But, you know, what happens if someone hacks, uh, you know, one of these uh, centralized security single points of failure? We're not talking about, you know, one power plant going out. We're talking about, you know, dramatic sections of the internet not working for, you know, a scary amount of time. So those are the types of things that keep me up rather than, you know, your your power grid type problems. And you describe that as an if not when question. Why? I mean, it seems to me one of the things about those giant single point of failure operations is that they become very hard to hit systemically without hitting yourself for many actors. So one of the reasons for it is that I see... Like for, for the majority of time up until now in cybersecurity, if you if you really need to get access to a target on the offensive side, there's lots of options, there's lots of vulnerabilities in these systems that, you know, uh, hackers can look for and they can target and they can sort of, these things are able to be relatively narrowly targeted without going after the platform companies themselves. And as some of these problems get harder, the demand to gain access to these devices is not going away, it's going up. But the ability to get into them is becoming more difficult for lots of these organizations. And as that supply of vulnerabilities begins to dry up, then they're going to start looking elsewhere in order to gain access. And that's what I kind of look at SolarWinds as sort of being on the cusp of, in the sense of, They're no longer going after the State Department by going after the State Department. They're going after the State Department by going after the suppliers. And they don't need a vulnerability to to, to gain access. They can, you know, social engineer or they can, you know, manage to get code uploaded into the build repositories or they can compromise these suppliers in order to, you know, deliver software just through the the logic vulnerability of it's a software update directly into the heart of these important networks. And that is is sort of terrifying when you start to realize that these people are not needing to go after these vulnerabilities in sort of the classical software vulnerability sense. They're able to go after, you know, these sort of supply chain systems themselves and going after the supply chain systems gives them access to not just one thing, but to this enormous group of things, as we sort of saw with the, the SolarWinds hack. So finally, I would be remiss and the Lawfare podcast audience would flay me if I did not ask you about post-2016 uh, information operations. So you were famously one of the uh, original attributors of the Russian dump of, of emails, and you were a kind of chronicler of the operations that took place during 2016. How do you assess the changed information operations environment in the years since then? Are you more concerned less concerned? Have the platforms 
done reasonably well, terribly? How's the world different from, you know, when you were foying all the things and and figuring out that Guccifer 2 was in fact uh, the GRU? So I'm generally, I think the, the environment is much worse than it used to be. Well, I, I think there's sort of two big things that sort of play into that. First of all, I think a lot of the the, the central disinformation that's, that's problematic in the United States right now is domestically produced. And we sort of see that with, you know, uh, uh, these sort of conspiracies like, you know, QAnon, you know, the these sort of widespread beliefs, you know, that affect public health in terms of, you know, vaccine denialism. Uh, we have, you know, things like the, the surreal beliefs like, you know, that Donald Trump is going to be reinstated as president in August. I'm counting the days. Yeah, it's not that long, right? Um, and and so the, the, the bit that's sort of terrifying about the, these things is how big they've become, right? You know, conspiracy theories are, are not particularly new. Uh, you know, we always had, you know, 9-11 truthers, Holocaust deniers, people that believed that, you know, we never really landed on the moon. But, you know, for the most part, these were fringe beliefs. And, you know, there was, you know, one idiot in every village that believes, you know, some of these. But now there's actually a, a really substantial communities of people that believe, you know, completely insane delusions. And that sort of leaks over into, you know, real life, as we saw with the Capitol riots in January, that these can have, you know, very dramatic physical world like impacts where these people get together, they have, you know, bizarre irrational views that sort of spill over into violence and a rejection of the system as a whole i i think it's a little bit tempting after you know donald trump has left office to sort of you know push this under the carpet and and try and pretend that it's not there but it is still there and it is is very very large and because so much of it is domestically produced there's much more complicated issues surrounding you know combating some of it you know in the event that you're Facebook and you see people that are, are paid by the Russian government to tell you that, you know, Hillary Clinton has children under a pizza hut in DC, you can sort of cut that off relatively easily. It becomes more problematic when they're actual Americans who genuinely believe some of this, you know, bullshit that they're spouting, where you draw some of these lines. And that, that's much more difficult. And it's and it's also not obviously a cybersecurity issue at that point, right? It's it's right. not the Russians hacking and dumping emails. It's it's people actually saying what they believe. Yeah. And, you know, uh, uh, when that spills over into something, you know, the, that's not merely, you know, wrong and objectionable, but, you know, encouraging violence, then, you know, there, there's sort of obvious lines to be drawn there. But when it's someone on Facebook is, you know, saying stupid things or saying wrong things, it's, it's difficult because, you know, that that spectrum is enormous. You know, people say wrong things on the internet all the time. You can't say, you know, you're not allowed to be wrong on the internet. Uh, and and working out where you draw those lines in a way that can actually scale for, you know, the, the sheer number of people on these platforms, uh, where you're not getting yourself as Facebook or Twitter into, you know, the, this sort of position of trying to be the arbiter of what is true and what is not true, which, you know, is a, a, a never going to work. That's a really difficult problem. And where these people are authentically bullshitting, you know, rather than, you know, inauthentically being paid by foreign governments to bullshit, that's a much more difficult problem. 
And the, the second strand of that problem, which again, you know, comes partly from, you know, the, the past four years, is this sort of inability in, in sort of the current information environment to find obvious places that are trusted sources of information, right? It's, it's really difficult to find a single news agency now that, you know, pretty much anybody that you meet in, in the US would consider to be, you know, impartial and delivering you facts on the ground. So every, everybody sort of more towards sort of the Trumpist right would look at CNN, and they would say this is fake news. And you know, if you look on people towards the left, they're, they're not trusting Fox News. And there's there's nothing really in the middle that everybody can kind of agree on as a ground truth of this actually happened. This is, you know, objective reality. And as you sort of see this divide of, you know, the entire country into two completely disjoint information bubbles, that's a really difficult problem to bridge. And it's not particularly clear how you bring those two sides back together in a way that's not going to be really, really damaging and, and continue to get worse. And that's different from four years ago. You know, even four years ago, I think, you know, most people across the country would have looked at, you know, CNN or the Washington Post or, you know, NPR, and they would say that this is because it has been reported here, I'm going to take it, you know, I might not take all of the opinion at, at face value, but I'm going to take the news at face value. And that's problematic. We are going to leave it on that cheerful note. <laughs> Matt Tate, it's a pleasure to see you. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode was Hamza Situ. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast. Share us on all the socials. You know the drill. Leave us a rating or review. Buy the merch at thelawfarestore.com. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.